Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening today. My name is Lydia Kincaid with IIM Innovation in Motion, and I have our managing member, Lee Harris, with us today. Um, we go through our podcast series talking about investing in startups. So tips for entrepreneurs, what we as investors look for, um, and hope to share some advice about how to be successful with a fundraise or investing in companies. Today, we're going to talk about the due diligence process. Now, the due diligence process typically occurs after there's at least some sort of initial interest from the investor or the investor group, and they're ready to move forward and seriously take a look um, at the ins and outs of your business. So what we have and what many other venture groups have is a standard due diligence checklist. And you can Google it and find a bunch, um, but they're really pretty standard and they, they cover a lot of the same things. Um, we wanna know everything about your business, the good, the bad and the ugly, so that we can accurately assess the risks and decide if the potential upside is still worth an investment in the company. Um, so Lee, there were a few things we were talking about just before this recording related to due diligence. What are some things top of mind from you to kick us off today? Well, Lydia, let's just jump right in. And the first thing that, I, that comes to mind for me is uh, something called a data room. Uh, that's typically an electronic uh, archive somewhere on a, on a system that uh, we can collaborate and documents can be uh, posted there and we have the opportunity to get in and look at them. Um, and once we set up a data room or ask for a data room to be set up, it's critical that the founder populate that quickly and completely. Uh, we've had situations where founders are slow. Uh, in fact, in some cases it's taken weeks or even months to populate a data room and, and that's a, a no-no because it doesn't inspire much confidence on our part that the, the founder's organized or, or even has uh, control of those kind of documents. So uh, that's, that's really important. And when I talk about documents, there's a, a myriad of documents that we need to see. Financial statements, certainly, uh, profit and loss statements, uh, balance sheets. Some of these may not be very substantial if it's a a company that's not generating revenue yet, but it's still important that we see that. Uh, tax returns for the entity, uh, we need to make sure that the founder is filing tax returns if in fact they're required to do so. Uh, minutes of meetings, uh, board meetings, if there is a board uh, or any sort of organizational meeting that needs to be documented, we wanna see those minutes. Bank statements, uh, are also on that list. So again, there are many, many more documents, uh, projections, cash, cash flow statements, those sorts of things. But uh, all of that's going to end up in the data room and, and we're going to want to see it. Something else that is uh, there's always a question that we ask during the pitch, and that is about the competition. Uh, how are you different as a founder with the product or service uh, than the competition. And sometimes we'll hear, well, we really don't have any competition. And that's, a, that's really not something we'd like to, to hear because yeah, there don't is- Don't ever say always, that. Even if you think it's true, don't, that's right. don't even that, say it. That's right. And what's really important is understand that we're going to do our own research on who your competitors are. Uh, so when we're asking who, who the competition is, if you leave out a substantive competitor, uh, we're going to find that out and we're going to wonder why that wasn't disclosed to us. So um, I think that 
that kind of uh, bubbles up to uh, a basic premise here, and that is don't fudge anything. Don't misrepresent anything, uh, puffery or otherwise here. Sometimes it's just puffing. Sometimes it's just out and out uh, incorrect, factually incorrect, or even um, dishonest. Uh, that's tantamount to securities fraud. We're operating in the Regulation D of the Securities and Exchange Act of 1936. Uh, and, and so effectively, uh, when a company is raising money, uh, you're in a securities business, even though they're unregistered securities. And if you don't uh, answer everything honestly and provide information accurately, uh, there can be some severe consequences from a, a, a criminal standpoint. So not trying to scare anybody, but uh, misrepresentation is a real problem. Um, there's many other, other elements to this. I, I, you and I were talking about letters of intent. Uh, letters of intent aren't real meaningful uh, when you're talking about the buzz that you have for your product or service. Uh, we need to, to see firm written con contracts. Uh, LOIs, letters of intent, are non-binding typically, and it's nice to see them, but it really doesn't mean much. So if you come and say, well, hey, we have 10 letters of intent, we're going to say, okay, but you know, how many contracts do you actually have? Um, and finally, uh, and then I want you to weigh in here certainly, but uh, China. Uh, we had a, a conversation with a, a founder a couple of weeks ago that uh, has a fairly significant China strategy. And in this day and age, with the decoupling that we're beginning to see with uh, China uh, from a, a, a public policy standpoint, uh, that's a real dangerous strategy, whether that means obtaining raw materials or some sort of uh, product manufacturing from, from China, or if selling to Chinese customers is part of the strategy, that's a real problem. And in due diligence, we're going to dig in and understand whether that's, uh, in fact, what you're doing. And, and, and from our standpoint, it's too risky right now with things in, in the way they are in China. All right, Lee, I think you make a lot of great points. Um, I would add on a few things. To what you said as well, um, when you mentioned being prepared and turning around those data room documents within a few weeks, um, that really can make either a good or bad impression on our investor group because we see so many deals throughout the year continuously that when one company starts to fall behind in the timeline, it's easy to just keep moving forward without them. So what's the best way to put together a data room from the receiver's point of view um, it's easiest if you would organize your data room in the exact same order that we send our due diligence checklist, the same numbers, the same alphanumerical order, so that we know exactly where to look as we're pulling together our due diligence report. And we'll get questions from our investor group throughout the due diligence process. Oh, what's this company's intellectual property strategy? Or what was you know, last year's projections? And did they meet those projections? It is great when we know exactly where to go in your data room to be able to immediately access that information. So I would add that in addition to being timely, being very organized um, and going to step beyond that would be organized exactly as, as how we presented the checklist to you as the founder. Um, I would also say a big piece of the data room tends to be an intellectual property folder. 
Um, so what sort of patents have been filed? Are they provisional? Have they been approved? Who owns the intellectual property as well? Um, is it the company that owns the intellectual property? Is it being licensed from a university? Is it owned by an individual? What's the individual's relationship with that company? We do want to know everything about your intellectual property portfolio because that can be really critical to the success of the business. Sometimes we'll get into situations where maybe intellectual property was developed and is owned in a university setting um, or some other company and the restrictions on the intellectual property or the royalty agreements um, or the financial obligations from the company to the owner of the IP are so onerous that we've ended up walking away from the deal because it severely limits the upside um, for the company in the long term. So we do wanna learn all those things and we'll ask the questions that makes our process go faster if that information is on hand and easy for us to review. Um, Another piece that I like to see in the data room um, is detailed biographies of each of the founding members and the executive team. We want to learn about the team and we'll, we'll get to talk with them anyway, but we want to learn about their backgrounds, what they've done, and our investors want to know that as well so that we can put that in writing and share that with them as they make their assessment um, about investing in the company. So timeliness, organization, thoroughness, all of those are really, really important. Um, and Lee, you said, don't fudge anything. Totally agree with that. I'll say it again 10 times. Um, but if there's a situation where we see whether it's a letter of intent and Lee point well taken about not being very meaningful, but if there is a letter of intent or some sort of statement about a customer and we call that customer and they say, oh, that's not the relationship at all. <laughs> Actually, I, I talked to this person at a restaurant and I said, I'd be interested in the future in talking to them, but we're not a paying customer. We haven't put anything in writing. Um, that's a big time red flag um, that speaks to the integrity of the founder and the team and, and what they've put forth. And we've been in that situation before. And that's why Lee, I'm sure that's why you brought it up because once we follow through and learn these things, um, that can cause us to walk away from a deal pretty quickly. Um, sometimes I've seen founders get their whole team involved in the due diligence process as well. And I think that can actually help the company and help the founder because they can be a lot more thorough um, and they get their finance person involved in putting together the finance folder or they get their legal or their counsel to get involved with the intellectual property folder. And that can help as well. That helps lighten the load from the CEO as individual, um, as opposed to trying to put all this together all on their own and certainly ask questions as well. If there's something on our list that you're not sure that you need um, or if it's really required, definitely ask and don't just leave it out um, because it could be something really, really critical for us and to not see it there either tells us that the company's not prepared or it's just absent from the business. Those are a few things I would add, Lee. Any other red flags that you can think of on the top of your head? Why don't you talk a little bit about the, the capitalization table? And uh, we have seen plenty of cap tables that were a mess. Uh, let's, uh, let's break that down a little bit. Absolutely. So a capitalization table is always required in our due diligence process. Um, and what that tells us is how the company has been structured, who the early investors were, who the owners are of the company. Um, often companies will have raised multiple rounds of funding and there will be different deals for different investors, but we'd like to see all on one spreadsheet, how it all fits together. We'd also like to see how the next round is going to impact everyone's ownership shares. Um, 
we've seen situations where there will be literally 30 or 40 different deals with 30 or 40 different individuals and it is impossible to track what those deals were. And so what, what that tells us as an investor is we don't know what we're going to own at the end of the day. If the conversion rates are different, if the maturity rates for a convertible note are different, if the valuation cap is different, if liquidation preferences are different, it really complicates things for the companies. Um, and related to the capitalization table, we always review as part of the deal documents, the investor rights agreements, the stock purchase agreement, of course, the basics. Um, and what sometimes is absent from those can be a red flag as well. And I'm, I'm speaking about um, investor rights. So what sort of rights um, do the investors have? Access to information, voting rights, conversion rights. Um, and depending on the sophistication of the deal documents, um, that can sometimes be really problematic for our investors because we're, we're on the lookout for their best interests. We, of course, want to do what's fair for both parties, both the company and our investors, but our investors are taking a lot of risk by investing their capital in these startups. And we wanna make sure that we are protecting them to the best of our ability. Anything else you'd add about capitalization tables, Lee? No, but there are some other things we're going to dig into. Uh, unit economics, for example, what does it cost to build your product or service? What's the, go what's the gross profit? Uh, and if you tell us that you're going to bring the, the cost down. We hear this a lot. Uh, the, the initial prototype costs this much. Uh, once we get to some level of scale, the cost will come down. Well, you need to tell us exactly how that's going to happen, not just that it will happen, but how are you going to achieve that? Uh, there's another term in the industry called the customer acquisition cost or CAC, C-A-C. We wanna know how much it costs for you to acquire each one of your customers. Uh, annual recurring revenue or monthly recurring revenue, ARR and MRR. Uh, those are critical terms and, and it's critical data we need if you have a subscription model. Um, and the, the, the more that you're building that uh, recurring income, uh, the more attractive your business is to us as an investor. What's your run rate? In other words, what kind of revenue are you, are you generating now? And many companies we look at are pre-revenue. Uh, so it, it does get a little comical at times to see some of the projections where uh, next year there's a projection that the company will generate $100,000 in revenue. The next year it's $8 million. And the year after that, it's $170 million. And I got to tell you that that's just not very... Uh, uh, very inspiring to us because very few companies, some software companies uh, might generate those kind of uh, growth patterns, but most companies don't. So um, a much more realistic run rate projection would be uh, beneficial to you as a founder. Your burn rate, of course, is critical to us. In other words, if we're uh, in, a, in a round where we're raising money and uh, we're going to ask you uh, how long that's going to last. And I think we've said this before, 12 to 18 months is, is okay. 18 to 24 months is better uh, because we would like to see you focused on your product development and, and uh, not so much on constantly raising capital. Uh, mm -hmm. But the burn rate is how much you're spending each month. Uh, and we will... We'll ask you how long your, your capital is going to, 
to last, what's your runway? And then we're going to ask you what's your burn rate, and we're going to see if the math works. So those are things you should know as a founder if, if you're in the pitch and we ask you those questions, you ought to just know that off the top of your head. Mm-hmm. Product market fit is another question that, that we're going to dig into from a due diligence standpoint. Does the product or service that you're developing, uh, is there market adoption? And if, you're, if, you, if you haven't introduced it into the marketplace yet, okay, uh, what evidence do you have that, that it's going to be uh, a fit and that there will be adoption? Uh, I think that's, that's something that's, that's critical to us. And, and also uh, be prepared to explain how you're going to scale. That's another thing we've, we've learned uh, from a lot of companies is uh, they have a great idea, but when it comes to scalability, it's, it's pretty weak in terms of the thesis they have for scaling. Uh, that's real important to us to, to, to understand. And, and lastly, I would say that the total addressable market, and we talked about this, I think, on a previous podcast, uh, when we see somebody come and say that they're going to solve a $30 billion problem, uh, usually they're not going to solve a $30 billion problem. They may solve some component of that $30 billion problem, but they're not going to solve the whole problem. It's better to be more realistic about what you believe your total addressable market is, because guess what? When we do our due diligence and our own research, uh, we're going to identify exactly what that total addressable market is. And if it's wildly different and lower than what you have indicated, that, again, does not inspire a lot of confidence in, in you as a founder. So those are just a few of the things that come to mind. I think there's a balance for all those things that you mentioned, Lee, because we see all the time projections that are just total blue skies and there's not much evidence um, for why a revenue would increase 10x or more year over year over year. But if you're only showing nominal revenue increases year over year, well, that's not very exciting either. So there's, there's a balance with being aggressive and realistic and being unrealistic that damages your credibility. So it it would really be ideal, and I've seen this in founders before, to show maybe multiple scenarios. So here's like our, here's our plan, and here's an even better outcome above plan, and here's if something goes wrong. So then we really know that you've thought through the risks in different cases that might come up as, as you're developing your product or your service. Absolutely, and, and if you wanna show revenue growth, have some basis for it, as you're suggesting. Mm. For example, uh, perhaps you're showing some sort of uh, significant growth from year to year, and perhaps year three, when it's supposed to to jump significantly in your projections, you're saying, but we're adding six salespeople, Mm -hmm. and here is how they're going to go about marketing and selling the product. And so you would expect then, oh, okay, part of what we're providing from a funding standpoint is going to help you hire six salespeople, uh, it stands to reason that you're going to be able to bump up your, uh, your revenue if, in fact, uh, they, these folks are, are uh, successful with their marketing and, and selling attempt. So right. have some basis for the projections that you're making. 
Right. Or it could be that they're launching a new product in that particular year or launching two new products, or they've got a contract that escalates after a year or two of positive results. Um, but what's really critical is documenting that and you know putting your assumptions in writing on that pro forma so that we don't have to guess or wonder um, because that just stretches out the process and creates confusion. Um, I would also say the balance there um, is is making sure that there are alternative scenarios, like I mentioned, having a best best case, middle case, and worst case scenario. Yeah, yeah. Um, some of those terms that you described as well, customer acquisition costs, um, those are always important to us. Even if the company is pre-revenue, we want to at least understand the thought process that the founder has um, for how they would acquire that customer, what it's going to take, how many people do they have to have on staff, how many customers in their pipeline do they need to land one, um, and do their customers have the ability to grow with them, or are they going to have a hundred different small customers? Um, that's really what helps a business start to scale is when they can have large customers that continue to expand their relationship based on expanding product offerings or expanding the development of the company as well. So we, we would love to know all that. There is a double-edged sword on that particular point, and that is that if, uh, if we see that you have one major customer and a handful of small customers, we do get concerned about concentration. Now, obviously, if, if you're early, early uh, in the process, uh, that big customer, particularly a big name customer, that could be sending a good signal to the rest of the marketplace that your product is, is worthwhile. And perhaps you're able then shortly thereafter to, to land some more big customers. But you have to balance that, that customer concentration, which is a risk, mm-hmm. uh, with, uh, I mean, at the early stage, you're going to pretty much take any customer that you can get for the most part. We understand that. Uh, but as you get later and later in the development of your, your company, you're going to want to remember that concentration is a risk that in series A and series B becomes a real factor. And it doesn't mean that you take less of that major customer uh, in their business. It means that you go out and you make sure you're diluting them by selling to more customers, perhaps bigger customers as well. Right. Being, to, being too well, being too dependent on one, that customer could decide tomorrow that they don't want to use your product anymore, or being too dependent on a certain regulation, um, that can also be really detrimental to a company. We've seen both of those things occur. So yeah, yeah. I agree. My last thought is kind of a, uh, an experience that we had recently with a, an investment in a, a human health company uh, that probably went as smoothly. Uh, and successfully for us as a as a funding platform, as any of that we've we've uh, experienced recently, and and in this particular case, the founder was all over uh, the the data room and had it populated immediately. Uh, was able to answer all of our questions, and in some cases, when she didn't know the answer, she said, "I don't know. I'll get back to you," and she did right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just it, it can be done. Uh, where I think in this particular case, uh, she had a fairly messy cap table and was able to fix uh, the cap table, went back to the investors and worked with them to, uh, to, to straighten some things out so that uh, it was much more amenable to us 
And that's really important too, because the further you get into the, the funding series, uh, the more important that cap table becomes. And if it's a mess uh, in series A or series B, you'll just not get investors. Uh, so best thing, if we tell you through our due diligence, your cap table is a mess, we'll work with you to straighten it out. But if you're not willing to do that, we won't invest. You need to take a hard look at that and, uh, and understand that we're, we're, we're helping you by making that observation because when it comes time for later stage funding, it just won't be there. Right, it's much easier to fix problems like that earlier on rather than wait until there's been a lot more money put into the company, a lot more time has passed, a lot more investors, because Lee, you're right at that stage, those investors aren't even gonna mess around with taking the time to do that for the most part. They wanna see that those problems have already been solved a long time ago. And it ends up being better for all of the investors and all of the company members as well um, to have things aligned early on rather than wait too late. Um, well, Lee, I think we covered our topics for today. Um, thanks everyone again for listening to us about our due diligence process. Feel free to reach out to us with any follow-up questions. Thanks again. Thank you.